children watch us very intently. They watch us very closely. Um, what you're seeing here today is not an accident. Um, Isaac was very deliberate in what he chose. They live in Virginia, and they came home to visit with us for a little while. And about a month ago, Heather sent us a picture of Isaac. He had gotten ready for school, and he wanted to look like, he calls me Papa. He wanted to look like Papa. And so he had a button-down shirt, and as you can see, we have matching fleeces. That's what he chose to wear to school one day about a month ago. He, he wanted to look like Papa. So eight, you know, eight hours away, he still knows how I dress. He pays attention to that. When they came up here this weekend, he brought these clothes specifically because he wanted to come to church with Papa and look like Papa. And so you see Isaac, we have our matching fleeces and our kind of similar shirts because he watches me. And so men, walk in integrity. Walk like God is proud of you because they're watching. You know, my grandson, eight hours away, knows my actions. He knows how I carry myself. And he wants to look like me. So if that's not humbling, nothing is. So thank you, Isaac. Can you go back to Grandma? All right. And it's too warm to be wearing this still. Children may be dismissed. Thank you. A voice from the other side. You know, I had a child in my arms. So all you children are free to go down with Miss Shelley to the children's church. So the message that I want to bring to you today, it's going to follow in that same line, is I'm going to be talking about blind faith. And Isaac is at an age, he's almost six, that he believes everything I say to him. He believes everything his mom and dad say to him. And so we have a very important role is that we're modeling, we're telling them the truth, we're telling them what they need to know. Um, and if we don't know how to carry ourselves in Christ, the world's going to tell them how to do it. So we have a very important role in our children's lives, our grandchildren's lives, Whoever you have in your life, it's very important that we're modeling the truth to them. So tomorrow, what's tomorrow, everybody? Monday, again, good answer. It is also President's Day. We're honoring George Washington and Abraham Lincoln tomorrow. Um, they both have February birthdays, so we continue to honor them for that. Um, two of the in my opinion, two of the best presidents we've ever had. And they were presidents at the time when this country needed huge, strong leadership. You know, George Washington was there when we were founding this country, when we were fighting for our independence from the British Empire. And Abraham Lincoln, the second most pivotal time in our time, our history, is when we were fighting the Civil War. We were trying to figure out exactly where this country was going to. So two of the greatest presidents we've had, we're celebrating their birth and remembering them tomorrow. And I want to read a quote from George Washington. 
says, while we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. When George Washington refers to religion, he's not talking about every religion under the sun. He's specifically referring to Christianity. And if you have any questions on that, read his writings. When they use the word religion, they're referring to Christianity. So he said, we should not be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. One of our founding fathers, one of his quotes that tells where he stood on this thing is that we need to be Christians first and patriots second. They are not against each other. And so we need to be zealous about our Christianity. We need to embrace it and make it a priority in our lives so that we're not just identifying ourselves that, you know, if I come up here and I don't introduce myself very often, as you guys have gotten used to probably at this point, I'm rich, by the way, um, is I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a doctor. I'm a pastor. But the most important thing that I should introduce myself as is I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's one of the things that I learned in a couple of the trips that we've gone over to Kenya and uh, um, Eastern Africa is when you hear pastors and even some of the lay people over there introduce themselves, the first thing they tell you is, I am a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ. Then they tell you their name. They tell you who they are. But the first thing that they lead with is your credentials, basically. Because if I get up here and tell you, oh, I'm a grandfather, obviously, I'm a husband and father to five children, does that really matter if I'm talking about things of the Bible? I mean, there, there's some import there. But if I'm going to stand up here and teach you about the Bible and who God is, isn't the most, most important thing I can tell you is that I'm a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ? That's my credentials. And if you look in the scriptures, when Paul wrote all of his letters, almost every one of his letters, and James and Peter do the same thing, is they introduce themselves by saying, I, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I, Paul, a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. I mean, they all use that phrasing to introduce their letters to the different churches. Is Here is who I am. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And everything that follows after that is based on that. When Ann and I do counseling, you know, when I do counseling individually, one of the first things I do when I'm talking to these people is I tell them everything that I'm going to talk to you from this point on has a basis right here. If it doesn't come out of the Bible, it's coming out of my opinion, and you don't want my opinion usually. <laughs> but what you need to know is this is the foundation for everything that I'm talking about. Everything that I'm trying to lead in teaching needs to start from here. If it doesn't, then it doesn't have any authority or power. So when you're introducing yourselves, when people are asking questions about you, one of the first things they need to hear is what? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And everything that follows after that needs to come in line with that. So that's the introduction. Last week we talked about love being blind. Okay, Everybody understood that, that love is not blind. Okay, that's what the world wants you to think or wants you to embrace, that love is blind. Forget about everything that was done wrong to you. Just sweep it under the rug. That's not what it is. It's about understanding that love looks intently 
to see how it can help, to see how it can heal. And so we have to open our eyes and see, and that's kind of the theme that God seems to have given me there is about blindness, about opening our eyes and actually seeing what's going on around us, and not just in the natural, but see what's going on in the spiritual realm that we are in, in, entwined in, but a lot of times we don't pay much attention to it. So blind faith, and again, if you look it up, all of you have heard the term before, blind faith, right? Has anybody ever accused you of having blind faith? Okay, all right, good. But the world wants to accuse you of probably of being faithfully blind, is that you don't really understand what you're following. Um, if you look it up, what it says, blind faith is belief without true understanding or perception. And you know, my grandson, Isaac, was up here, and he believes me because he trusts me because I've been part of his life since he was born. And so he looks up to me. And I will not do this to him, but if I had started t telling him when he was a little child, and still a little child, when he was a baby, if I had told him that this was a tree, okay, what's he going to think this is? And for a while, he's going to believe me that it's a tree, but then when he starts encountering other people and going to school, and you know, he holds up a book and says, it's a tree. What's going to happen to him? He's going to get ridiculed. He's going to get told that he's wrong, and then that's going to break his trust in me. So we have to be very diligent in making sure that what we are telling people, what we're leading in by example, is that it's the truth, that it can't be something that we just blindly are believing. You know, as a child, that's what you kind of expect, is that's how they learn, is they learn by seeing you, they learn by hearing from you. So, again, we have to be very, very careful to make sure we're modeling the truth constantly. Another example I want to use with you is about blind faith is some of this, some of you will recognize what I'm talking about pretty quickly. But in the late 60s, a group of musicians came together and formed a new band. And there were four members in the band. Some of them had come from a group called Cream, Yardbirds. Spencer Davis group and traffic. Anybody recognize any of those groups? Okay. So these musicians, they came together, the four of them, and they formed a band. And first, they just, they just liked being around each other. They were talented musicians, wanted to just enjoy the musicianship that they had with each other. Well, word got around, hey, these guys are forming a band, and the excitement levels went off the charts because these guys were renowned musicians. The groups they had come out of had you know, sold out stadiums they had done all kinds of huge tours and so people were excited this is a new thing this is going to be great they actually one of the first bands to be called a super group and with all the excitement building and all the you know attempts to get them to you know sign and do you know albums and record deals and all this is one of the members of the band said they're putting expectations on us before we've done anything and so he came up with the name for the group, Blind Faith. Okay, anybody know who the members of the group were? A little trivia here. Eric Clapton was the guitarist. Ginger Baker was the drummer. Steve Winwood was the keyboard and vocalist. So most people know the names Clapton and Winwood. And then Rick Reach was the bassist. He was the unknown guy. But this was considered to be a super group that there was just expectations were off the roof that they hadn't done a thing yet. 
and clapped and said, you got blind faith that we're going to do something beyond measure. And so that's where he said they came up with a name for the group. And they were. They were hugely successful. They put one album out, did a world tour, played to 100,000 people in Hyde Park, one of their opening acts, and they were done. One album, one tour, done. So was blind faith true? That people put some expectations on them that weren't real, realistic? Apparently. So with being a Christian, the analogy I want to do there is people want to say that you have no basis for your faith, that it's tales, it's, it's imagination, that you have no assurance of your faith, that you're just following something blindly. That's not how it should be. Some of you may be there. You're not sure of why you're even here today. You're not sure why you continue going to church or why you follow the teachings of the Bible. We need to have proof that there's something beyond what we're just seeing. So belief with blind faith is belief without true understanding or perception. And as Christians, that gets applied to us many times. And... Many people would agree that Christians have a blind faith, and our, you know, it's based on imaginations, fables, lies. And I want to read a quote from an influential atheist. That a lot of people listen to this man and believe what he says because he's intelligent, supposedly. Here's his quote. He says, faith opposes reason. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, this man says you're unreasonable. Anybody in here feel like you're unreasonable? Faith opposes reason. It's a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a delusion. It's a persistent, false belief held in spite of strong, contradictory evidence. So this man is saying he is so smart that the things that you know and believe stand against reason. So when we say that you have blind faith, or this man will say very clearly that you're following something blindly, we need to understand what it is we truly believe in, who we believe in. And anybody see this tree, this book? Um, it is made up from a tree, that's true. But this is, it's called New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh McDowell, if any of you are familiar with him. And Josh McDowell was an atheist and set out to disprove that God existed. And what you see here is the evidence that he gathered that actually led him to become a Christian, that God rocked his world as he tried to figure out how to disprove who God was. So this is just, you know, this is a light reading for everybody. Everybody go pick one of these up and read it tonight. He was saying faith isn't blind. There's lots of evidence to show you that Christ is real, that God is real, that he acts and moves in our lives. And I don't know how many years Josh McDowell spent doing this work, but it led him to Christ. And you hear that story. Lee, Lee Strobel, I think, is another man that did the same thing, that he set out to disprove God, that he doesn't exist, and I'm going to prove it to you. And as he dug into the things of God to disprove God's existence, God got a hold of his heart got a hold of his mind, then got a hold of his heart and broke him and brought him to a Christian. He's one of the leading apologetists in Christianity. Same with Josh McDowell. 
So our trust and our confidence in Christ has to have a basis. So if we'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. So Hebrews chapter 11 defines faith for us. And the first verse is, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So what is faith? It actually has a substance. It has an assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And if you read on, you read all of chapter 11, a lot of people refer to this as the faith hall of fame is that all the people that are listed here is their faith was evident because of their actions, because of the way they heard God's voice speaking to them and they took action upon it. And in verse 2, for by the elders obtained a good report. Verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And then it goes into the by faith Abel offered unto God. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not yet seen, moved with fear and prepared the ark. By faith, Abraham, when he was called out of a place, by faith he sojourned. Through faith, Sarah. So if you read through, every one of those is by faith, in faith, through faith, is that their faith moved them to action. It took them from where they were and said, I trust God. Abraham, I mean, there's so many examples of Abraham, is that Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God spoke to him at one point and said, leave your home and go somewhere. If you read the account where God was speaking to Abraham, did God tell him where to go? He said, leave your home and go. I mean, question mark, Abraham, where am I supposed to go? God didn't give him the entire plan. He said, leave your family, which he didn't obey that part of it, and there's lessons in there, is that when God tells you to do something, listen to what God tells you. If God tells you to leave your family in Ur, leave your family in Ur, because Abraham did not do that. He took his son Lot with him, and Lot caused him all kinds of problems in the intervening chapters in Genesis. But he obeyed the command of God to some extent. He went and he followed to where God was leading him to go and became one of the patriarchs of the Hebrew faith. So chapter 11 is filled with the examples of faith. It's filled with people that said, what God says is enough for me to act. I'm going to take what he tells me, and I'm going to move on it. <clears throat> so what is the substance of, or the assurance of our faith? Depending on your translation, where it says, faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So instead of us just believing blindly, our faith has a substance to it. One of the first things we have is the assurance of this thing right here, the Bible. Okay, This is the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. He put words down for us to be able to be guided in this lifetime by. Did he say more than this? I mean, even you know, you look at what Jesus said. Um, it's spoken of Jesus that if all the words that Jesus had spoken in his three years of ministry, 
there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all of his words. So do you think we have enough of Jesus' words in here to keep us occupied for a while? Okay. God preserved this thing, these words, over thousands of years. He used multiple different authors to write down his words centuries, thousands of years apart. But there was a continuity because when God authored it, he used different men to write the words down. But because it was God speaking to them, there's continuity, there's unity from Genesis to Revelation that speaks of who God is and the salvation that he gave us in Christ. So all of these things are part of our assurance. Because if this was just a book by man, would it have been kept intact the way it was? One of the important findings that kind of validates this is, I think it was in 1947, um, near the Dead Sea, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves of Qumran. And what they were able to do is they were able to take those scrolls that had been sealed away in pots for centuries, take them out, read the Hebrew that they were written in. And if you had gone to, I heard somebody say this one time, that if you had gone to a souvenir store or a bookshop in Jerusalem and pulled a Hebrew Old Testament off the shelves, you basically could have read them side by side and they would have been parallel translations of each other. So what it demonstrated to scholars and to you know, skeptics is that the word of God has been preserved very accurately over thousands of years. So we have that assurance right here that the Bible, that it's true and that it was written for us in this time right now. Another assurance that we have is that we have non-biblical authors that record some of the same events and they're verified. You know, Josephus is one of the historians from the early period of, and he was not a Christian, he was not a Hebrew, he was just a historian that wanted to record history. And he has multiple books that if you read through them, they talk about some of the same things that are described in the Bible. So here was an outside observer that has no Christian bent or desire to prove God's existence. He was just recording history. And they're able to use the writings of Josephus to say that a lot of the things that are in here actually happened because this man, Josephus, wrote them down in a history book. Another assurance we have is the archaeological evidence that verifies the Bible. A lot of the accounts of the Bible, they said, well, they couldn't be true because we have no history or we have no records of this you know, particular civilization, let's say. But over the centuries of us digging in the dirt, trying to find things, is they have time after time found things that verify civilizations or kingdoms that are mentioned only in the Bible and there was no proof of them anywhere else. But as we keep digging in the earth, we keep finding more and more things that back up and say what the Bible said was actually true. And so we're, you know, God is constantly refuting the arguments that, well, this tribe didn't exist, this people didn't exist, this city never existed. Well, time after time, we dig a little bit deeper in the earth and we find a little bit more. And that's, just picture that for a moment. One of the things we're told to do is to not just be remain superficial Christians, right? Not just be satisfied with how you are when you first got born again as a baby. We need to keep digging into the word. We need to understand deeper meanings of what God is trying to show to us. You know, Paul says that when we were babies, we were fed the milk of the word, right? Because a newborn baby can't handle a steak. 
right? No teeth, don't have the ability to digest it properly yet. So a baby needs milk, mother's milk. But then as the baby grows and gets stronger, you can introduce more heartier foods and, and meat eventually, yes. And so as Christians, the same thing, that I was 24 when I got saved. So I was already eating meat. I was already eating steak and good food like that. But as a Christian, if I had just started trying to chew on steaks of the word, it probably would have overwhelmed me. I would not have understood it because I didn't have the capacity. I was a baby. And so God revealed his word to me in small little chewable bites, if you will. Very basic stuff. And that as I grew in that, he was able to give me more and give me more and bring me up in my understanding as I grew in Christ to a more mature level. Another assurance that we have that the word of God is true and that our faith is not blind are signs, miracles, and wonders. What are signs, miracles, and wonders? They're things that go against nature. They're things that go against real, you know, realism or expectation. Um, Jesus walking on the water. Was that a sign, miracle, or a wonder? Okay, Because should you be able to walk on water? Anybody in here done it yet? And I'm not talking about walking on frozen lakes. You, yeah, we should sink. If we try and walk out on the Conowongo right now, if we find a spot without any ice on it, we should sink down because we're not designed to be buoyant. We're not floaters. Okay, Our density causes us to go down. But because Jesus was trying to demonstrate a proof, a power to his disciples, he walked on the water. And the disciples couldn't understand it because they knew that wasn't natural. I mean, they were fishermen. They were used to being on the lake. They were used to being in boats floating. And here comes Jesus walking across the water. It's not natural. Okay, exactly. It's not natural. That's something we need to get a hold of is that as Christians, we are to also understand that we are a supernatural being. Beyond what this body, what the emotions, what the mind can understand, we're also a spiritual component, and we have to understand. That's where the signs, the miracles, and wonders come in, is that when we're operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, when we're operating, as Jesus said, that we can do things that you know, he did and even greater things, those are the kind of things he's talking about that, that, that go against what we expect to happen or what we know should happen in our intellect because our minds only know so much and God knows so much more. Everybody agree with that? God's smarter than me? Anybody want to argue on that one? Okay. God is much smarter than me. Much smarter. Thank you, Diane. And so why would we rely on our own intellect when we can tap into, when we can rely on the creator of the universe and he will reveal truth to us. He'll reveal to us the things that we need to know in the time that we need to know them. And then the last assurance I want to talk to you about that we have that our faith is not blind is every single one of you, I want you to think for a moment, is think of your life six days before you encountered Christ's salvation. And think about the day that you encountered him and had that salvation experience. Has your life changed since then? Your faith is not blind because your life has been changed from who you were before salvation. You know, 
Think of it as B.C. Literally, before Christ came into your life, before you accepted Christ in your life, you were a different person. You were a sinner going to hell. After Christ, after you encountered Christ, and he changed your world, you have become a a new person. You've become a new creation. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a process of time. But A.D., after Christ, A.C., I should say, that's part of your assurance that your faith is not blind because you have your own testimony. Every one of us has unique testimony in what God has done with us since that day. And your testimony is your own assurance of how he's changed you, what he's going to do with you. He's taken you from where you were, a sinner bent on hell, to a servant of the Most High God, a representative, an ambassador, all the different things that we are called to be in Christ. Again, if we're doing it out of our own intellect, we're missing the mark. Um, bring up that next slide, guys, the blind leading the blind. I mean, that picture kind of is self-explanatory, right? Is that if you have a blind guide leading you through a canyon area, not a very good scenario, is it? Would you want to be the second person? Third person, I think, has a chance because he's holding on pretty loosely there. So as the second first and second person go over the edge and start screaming, hopefully the third person lets go. But we can make our own scenarios up there. But one of the biggest rebukes that Jesus had in the Bible is for the leaders of his church, for the leaders of the synagogue. And he said, you're the blind leading the blind. You're hypocrites. He called them some pretty intense names. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. You're alive on the outside, but there's no life inside you. There's dead man's bones inside of you. And, again, I'll put myself out there that any of us, you know, the leaders that were, you know, that called TF our home right now, and I've said this to you, to you many times over the you know, last year or so, if I say things from the front here in the classes that I lead that do not line up with Scripture, you have to call me on it because it's for your own good. Because if I'm up here speaking half-truths and telling you that there's a lot of ways that you can get into heaven, you don't have to follow Christ. Anybody ever heard that before? It's what the world wants us to believe, that there's lots of ways to get into heaven. And so that's me with my blinders on. I'm leading you in a way that God does not intend for you to go. And so as Christians, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to be aware of what the truth is. You have to have this thing as part of your life on a daily basis. You have to know your scriptures so that if I'm saying something that is false or heretical, you need to be able to recognize it. Because my purpose in being up here is not to teach you all truth. Because I can't do it. You shouldn't be expecting me to do it. You know, our grandson sitting back there is my daughter does not expect his kindergarten teacher to teach him everything he needs to know in life. Be kind of irresponsible for her to do that, wouldn't it? And so if I step on any toes, sorry. But if you come here on Sunday mornings expecting 
myself, Jeff, AJ, whoever it is that's teaching up here, to teach you all the truth that there is in the world, you're being irresponsible. I'm here to help and guide and to equip the saints. Ephesians 4.11 says that God gave the apostles, pastors, evangelists, teachers, and prophets, apostles, five of them in there anyhow, for the equipping of the saints to do the works of ministry. So my purpose, my responsibility up here on Sunday mornings is not to do all the works of ministry. My purpose in being here on Sunday mornings and the other classes that we run here is to equip the saints. Who's a saint in here? Blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. My purpose here is to equip the saints to do the works of ministry. This is just one aspect of ministry is teaching on a Sunday morning, worshiping on a Sunday morning. Ministry goes beyond these four walls 24 hours a day. That wherever you are, you have ministry. Are you equipping yourself to do that ministry with your full heart and your whole mind and body? This is part of it. But you have to do this on a daily basis. You have to be in the word every single day to make yourself strong in Christ. So the blind leading the blind, the rebuke that Jesus had is the scribes and Pharisees were putting more and more rules and regulations on the people for them to try and follow. And Jesus said, you're putting burdens on the people that I never intended. The gospel is simple. What is the gospel? I'm a sinner. I can't live long. I can't do enough good works to get myself out of debt. So Jesus said, we got a better plan. I'm going to put myself on a cross. I'm going to die for your sins. All you have to do is accept it. Repent of your sins. Be cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. And you're a new creation. Is that too simple? Or is it just right? It's God's plan. We can't make it any simpler. We can't make, we make it harder. And that's one of the rebukes that Jesus had for the leaders is you're blindly leading the people over a cliff that I saved them from. So that's where his rebuke was to the leaders, is that you know, leaders, pastors, and shepherds are called to a much higher standard when it comes to the judgment day. But every single one of you has a calling to be a minister to the world, to those around you, your co-workers, whoever you happen to be in your sphere of influence, is you are called to minister the word of God to them. And a lot of times you don't have to say a thing. You know, again, think of my little grandson there, Isaac. Did I tell him how to dress? For whatever reason, he wanted to emulate me. He wanted to look like me and dress like me. So the world's watching you and seeing how you carry yourself. They're seeing how you interact with other people when you know you're in the grocery line what are you talking about what are you doing when you're driving down the road how are you driving are you glorifying god or are you glorifying the world there's not a whole lot of options when we're talking about how we live our life day to day is we're either glorifying god or we're not simple let's bring up the next slide guys and this is a quote, probably a lot of you have heard or seen this one before. Helen Keller, the only thing worse than being blind 
is having sight but no vision. Now, if anybody's not familiar with Helen Keller, um, she was a young girl, was blind. Um, close your eyes. All of you make yourselves blind right now. And keep your eyes closed until I tell you to open them. When I was in high school, um, one of the health teachers that we had, he did this experiment, if you will, every year, is he would take his health class and he would pair you off. And one day, you were blind. You would walk through school all day long with a blindfold or some sort of mask on so you could not see. And those of you that remember high school, can you imagine being that person just wandering the school by yourself? But he paired us up with somebody that would guide us, would lead us around so that while we were blind, we had somebody looking out for us, watching over us. And keep your eyes closed. But the picture that was up there, can you imagine standing at Inspiration Point? And, well, you know I like to quiz you guys. Anybody know where that picture's from? Does anybody remember the picture? Keep your eyes closed. It's Yosemite Valley in California, beautiful valley, beautiful part of God's creation. But can you imagine standing at Inspiration Point with your eyes closed? What could you perceive? You might be able to hear the wind. You might be able to feel the wind. You'd be able to hear birds chirping and calling. But what are you missing? You're missing the grandeur of that place, the, you know, the awesomeness of standing thousands of feet above a valley floor. Can you imagine trying to describe that to someone? Our words aren't adequate. So what Helen Keller said is the only thing worse than being blind is to have sight but no vision. So you get, if anybody's still awake, you can open your eyes. Nap time's over. Is how many of us do that? We go through life being able to see but we don't have vision for what God wants us to do in our lives. We have no vision. We have the ability to see, but we're not truly seeing what's going on around us. And so that's part of the message I think God's given me over these last couple of weeks with you know the blind, love is blind, blind faith, is we're all walking through life, and we can see, and our sense of sight is amazing. I mean, everybody take a good look at that picture right now is to actually stand there and see that view, it's overwhelming. And everybody's heard the phrase that pictures don't do it justice. This is one of those places that you've seen hundreds of pictures of this place possibly. But if you've actually stood there and seen that view, pictures do not do it justice. Because as intricate as cameras have become, they still don't capture what this thing can do. That's how amazing our senses are, the way God created us is they can take in creation and overwhelm us. That picture is still pretty amazing, but to actually stand there and see it, totally different. So to have sight but no vision is we're missing a lot of things because we're only trying to encounter, we're only trying to experience this life through our senses. And so, again, imagine that you were blind, that you cannot see. 
how much you'd be missing, how much you'd, you know, if, if there was a, a blind person here today, they'd be able to hear my words, but they'd be missing a little bit of it. They'd be missing the interaction of, you know, what's going on with other people, what's going on in individual circumstances. And so God wants us to open our eyes up. He wants us to see things in a way that our natural eyes cannot perceive. And what does it mean to not have vision? Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and we taught on this a couple months ago. One of the most important verses in the Bible when we're talking about the supernatural is Ephesians 6, 12 says that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but what? The powers and the principalities of the air. It's the demonic forces. It's the, you know, the army of Satan, if you will. That's our adversary. What I can see with my own eyes, you aren't my enemy. An atheist is not my enemy. Somebody that's trying to take my life possibly is not my enemy. It's the powers and the principalities of the air. The plans of Satan, that's my enemy. And I can't see that with my natural eyes. And that's what Ephesians 6.12 says. We need to be aware of that. We need to constantly be reminding ourselves that what we can see is not the problem. It may be symptoms of it, but it's not the problem. It's what's going on in the heavenlies. It's what's going on in the spiritual realm that is our true enemy. And we can't recognize that with our natural eyes most of the time. We can see effects of it, but we can't truly see it. And a great example of that is in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 15. This is where Elisha, one of the prophets of God, had been revealing to the Hebrews, to the um, nation of Israel, the plans of their enemy. And so if you're an enemy king and you're trying to come against Jerusalem, if you're trying to come against the Hebrews, and they keep understanding what your battle plan is, your natural reaction is, well, they got a spy in my camp. Somebody's taken my information, my battle plan, and given it to the Hebrew king and saying, here's what they're going to do. Get ready for it. So the king, he's you know, questioning his people and saying, all right, who's the traitor? Who do I need to kill? And they all claimed ignorance because they, all, they were all ignorant. They were not, nobody was betraying the king. God was speaking to Elisha and telling him the battle plan. Because Elisha was opening his eyes to a spiritual battle that the king wasn't aware of. And so eventually word got around to him that, hey, Elisha, this prophet of God, is revealing your battle plans to the Israelites. And so the king's natural plan was, well, we need to kill the traitor, or we need to kill the prophet of God because he's revealing our battle plan. So the, arm, the enemy army comes and surrounds Elisha and his servant. They send an entire army to take out Elisha and his servant. So they, two men requires an entire army to come against them. And so the next morning, the, the enemy army has surrounded the city, and the servant of God wakes up, you know, goes to find his morning coffee, right, and sees the army of the enemy arrayed around the city, surrounded. His natural reaction is, uh-oh, this is the end. Runs back to Elisha and says, Lord, we're surrounded, we're doomed, it's over. And Elisha gets up and is like, what's your problem? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Elisha comes and he sees what he's talking about. He said, you need to open up your eyes. And if you read on in verse 9, or excuse me, verse 17, 
Elisha prays to God, Lord, open up his eyes to let him see the truth. And when the servant's eyes were opened, what did he see? He saw the army of God surrounding the enemy army. And so when his eyes were opened, he saw the natural enemy, but he saw the Lord's salvation. And if you read on in Second Kings there, it goes on to say that the Lord's army defeated the army of the enemy. And Elisha was able to walk away from that and continue serving God for many years after that. So with all this being said, blind faith and, you know, me not leading you as a blind leader or whoever it happens to be, how do you open your eyes? How do we make sure that we're not having blind faith, that we have a belief that has true understanding and perception? And again, if you would turn to Second Peter, just go to your right a little bit from Hebrews. Second Peter, chapter one, and verse five. And besides this, giving all diligence. <clears throat> Add to your faith virtue, which is a high moral standard, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, patience godliness, and add godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So what do you do with your faith? How do you assure that you don't have blind faith? You start with faith. But then what Peter's telling the people here in his second letter to them is when you have faith, you add to it. You add a little higher understanding. You add a little more to that faith. You add virtue to your faith, and then you add knowledge to your virtue. You add temperance to your knowledge, and so on and so forth. And the last thing he ends with there is when you have your brotherly kindness, that's when you encounter the God agape love. Is it the progression where you move from faith to faith, to higher faith, to brotherly love, to agape love. And so don't stay satisfied with just a beginner's level of faith. When you first accepted Christ, that level of faith you had then should not be what you have now unless you were saved today. If your salvation occurred 12 years ago, you should have matured over the 12 years in adding to your faith these things that Peter's talking about. And in verse 9, let me skip ahead a little bit there. So all those things that you're to add to your faith, previous to three verses there. But if you lack these things, what does it say? You're blind. And you cannot see afar off, and you've forgotten that he was purged from your old sins. So if you lack those things, if you have not added those things to your faith, Peter says you're blind. We don't want to be blind, right? We want to be seeing clearly. We want to see, as Elisha saw, the supernatural things that are going on in the world and in our lives. So, and then another verse I want to share with you is Malachi, chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. This, again, is another way that you can assure that your faith is not blind. So, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. 
think one of the important things with the order that God puts things in is that when Malachi stopped speaking as a prophet of God, Israel went 400 years before they heard from God again. So the things that God spoke last through Malachi are something that we should pay attention to. Um, and in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, God speaking through Malachi says, You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it in heaven, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Lord of hosts. So God's speaking specifically about the tithe that they were to be bringing into the storehouse so that there was food in Israel to serve the needs of the people. This is a verse that still applies to us today, that God, you know, Jesus set the example that when he was in the temple watching them bring their tithes and their offerings in, it wasn't something he did away with. This is something that still is an opportunity for your faith to be tested, is that if God gives you $100, what's he ask for for return? A tenth, $10. Does God need your money? Do the works of the kingdom need money? Okay. Everybody happy that there's a furnace in the building today? Okay. 15 degrees out there. The furnace is a nice convenience, right? For this ministry, for this church to function, we need finances. So that's part of what happens when you tithe is you pay bills. You get things done around here. But it also, more importantly, it says it's an opportunity for you to test God. Is if he gives you $100 and you've got $112 in bills, you're thinking, well, I can't give God anything because I don't even have enough money to pay my bills. But he says, test me. That if you tithe in faith, if he won't rebuke the devourer, if he won't look after you. So tithing is an opportunity for us to put our faith in God, to test him, to see if what he says is true. That if we tithe in faith, God's going to look, look out for us. He's going to open doors for you maybe that you didn't know were there. So it's part of the testing. So how do we know that our faith has substance? You've tested God with your finances, your tithes and your offerings. That's one way to show that you don't have blind faith, is that you trust God with your finances, with your life. The second way is you've added to your faith the things listed in 2 Peter 1. Is you've added faith, you've added virtue, you've added temperance, your patience, all those things that are listed there, is you're not satisfied with just a baby-level faith. You've gone deeper into the things of God. The third thing, third way to show that your faith has substance is your life has been changed since you surrendered to him. You're not the same person that you were a year ago, that you were six years ago, that you have a deeper understanding, you have a deeper compassion for those that are in the same situation you may have been in. Fourth way that you know that your faith has substance, you have an assurance in it, is you no longer tolerate sin in your own life. And you don't tolerate sin in those that call themselves Christians. That's a heavy one, isn't it? Yeah. To look at my own sin is one thing. 
and to understand that I need to repent, ask forgiveness, and allow him to change me. But one of the things that we're called to as brothers and sisters in Christ is to be united, to look out for each other. That if you see me in sin and you don't call me on it, you don't correct me, rebuke me, whatever the situation calls for, you're allowing me to be a blind guide. Because am I going to hear from God if I'm living in sin? I can get up here and read the word of God, but am I bringing you what God wants? So we have to call on each other. We have to know each other. And this is something we've been talking about for the last year, is we need to get to know each other. We need to trust each other. We need to invest time in each other so that when I'm in sin, you recognize it. And that we've built a relationship that you can call me on it and I'm not just going to walk away and stomp my feet and say, you're being mean to me. You're doing it because you love me and because you want the best for the body of Christ. So any of you that we've come to and we've confronted on issues in your life, that's why we're doing it. We're not doing it to say we're better than you. We're doing it because as the body of Christ, I'm only as healthy as the weakest part of myself. And so as we go through the days together, that's what we're looking for. Is we're looking to build each other up, to strengthen our faith so that we're no longer like little children. They're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along. But we're solid in who we are and who we are as a body of believers, that we look out for each other, that we are trying to support each other, not in tolerating our sin, but showing it and revealing it that in Christ the sin can be taken away. The conquer class that I was talking about is pornography has a huge addiction and a hold on men especially. And the statistics bear that out, that 70% of evangelical Christian men have a problem with pornography. 50% of pastors is what the um, Barna research shows. So is it a problem in the church? Obviously. Obviously. Do we just ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist? No. We've done that. And we see the state that the church is in. And I'm not just talking about PF. I'm talking about the church worldwide, the body of Christ. So if we ignore sins and just tolerate them and say, well, if I talk about that issue in somebody's life, they're going to talk about the issues in my life. Well, repent of your issues. Simple as that. Is deal with the things that are in your life so that you can be used of God more greatly. So we have to be calling on each other. We have to understand that not anybody in this room is perfect. We all have our flaws. We all have our issues. And we need to drop them at God's feet, at the foot of the cross, to be cleansed of them so that he can use us in a greater way. And that's his entire purpose is that the time that we have left on this earth is he wants to use us in a great way to do greater works than even Christ did. That's a pretty high calling, but that's the one we all have. And then the last thing on to make sure that your faith is not blind is we need to love each other through the eyes of Christ. Because my own eyes, my natural inclinations is I don't want to love all of you. Am I easy to love? And? Okay. To be truthful, you know, her life has not always been great because I'm, I have my issues. I've had things that God has had to deal with me on. But if we can take on the mind and the heart of Christ and look at each other through those eyes, 
It's going to change our perception. It's going to change the level of compassion that we have. It's going to give us an understanding that I once was a sinner. I needed salvation, and I need to continue to be cleansed by the presence of Christ. And so if that's true of me, it's true for all of you. And so when I get that understanding, when I get that deep into my heart, I can look at every single one of you, and no matter what you're going through, it's not going to surprise or shock me. Because I know every single one of you sitting here has an issue that you need to bring to the cross, that you need to allow Christ to heal and remove it from you so that you can become that new creation in Christ and be lifted up into the purposes that he created you for. So the, the thing behind AJ and I now, the cross, that's what it all comes down to, is the cross itself was just an instrument. It was a tool that God used to bring us back into right relationship with himself. Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to that thing, that cross, a horrendous way to die, because he had such a love for you that he saw past your sin. He saw the past the fact that you were his enemy and said, this is what needs to be done to bring them back into the family of God. And he was willing to do that. He was willing to lay down his life so that we could be brought back into a right relationship with the king. So as we end this morning, don't walk in blind faith. Find and dig why you believe. Don't believe just because your parents told you to believe. Don't believe just because this is traditionally what you've done on a Sunday. You've come to church because that's what your family has always done. Make Christ your own. One of the other things I learned from the <clears throat> Kenyan brothers that we encountered is they refer to Jesus as my Jesus. They make him personal. My Jesus did this for me. My Jesus saved my life. That's right. Each individual person sitting in here right now, that's who Christ died for. He didn't die for all of us. He died for you individually. Make it personal. When you're reading the scriptures, take out the pronouns and put your name in there. For God so loved rich that he gave his only begotten son that when rich believes on him, he shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Personalize the scripture because they're written directly to you. They're for all of us, but they're for you individually. Make them personal and allow him to transform you into his image. So don't be blind. Pray that he will open up your eyes so you can see the, nat the natural and the supernatural things that are going on around us. And don't be satisfied with just surviving another day. Jesus said, I came to give you life. We all have life, right? But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, I came to give you life and I came to give it to you abundantly. That's what he wants for us is an abundant life that we're serving him with all that he's given us. If I serve him with all that I have, it's not much. But if I serve him with all that he gives me and continues to provide me with, that's where the abundance comes in. Is it's in him that I can do all things in Christ. So, familiar song that all of you know, 
Amazing Grace. Beautiful song, isn't it? One of the lines in that song is, once I, I was once blind, but now I see. So as we end, I want you to be thinking of that song. Sing that song to yourself as you go out of here. That once I was blind, but now I see clearly because of what Christ has done in me and for me. So everybody would, let's stand. Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we can gather together in your name. Lord, I ask you to take the words that have been spoken this morning, the words from your word, words of truth, words of life and hope. We will just sink them down deep into our hearts, Lord. That as we leave this place, we will be more than we came into this place being. That every time that we come into your presence, whether it's corporately here in this church or in our time with you alone, that we will encounter you in a way that we are truly transformed into your image. We will not be satisfied, that we will hunger for more. We will dig deeper because the world needs us to do it. It needs us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. So I thank you for every person gathered here this morning across the world those watching even online lord just touch us each other in a way that we need that your name will be glorified and that the things of you will be revealed as we go through these days ahead of us we give you the glory and the honor in jesus name amen all right go and be a blessing people <laughs>